to have a Bible with you today, you can maybe turn uh, to Isaiah and chapter 28. Isaiah and chapter 28. We're thinking today of Jesus, the sure foundation, primarily in verse number 16. Skyscrapers, a building of 150 meters minimum height, are an amazing engineering production. The Pay 101 is a skyscraper, 1,667 feet tall, in the architectural design of Taiwan and China. Its foundation is 262 feet deep. The area is located, is prone to earthquakes, hence the deep foundation. The tallest building in the U.S., One World Trade Center, stands at 1,776 feet tall, a nod to the year of the Declaration of Independence. It has a foundation of 150 feet. Shanghai Tower, 2,073 feet tall, the world's second largest tallest building, has a foundation of 282 feet Verse 26 describes Jesus as the sure foundation. We come today to the last of our studies in Isaiah for this time. We've taken as our theme portraits of Jesus in Isaiah 1 to 39. We've studied those clear prophecies of Jesus in these chapters. We've seen Jesus as the branch in chapter 4, the Lord in chapter 6, the sign in chapter 7, the light in chapter 9, the shoot of Jesse in chapter 11, the secure peg in chapter 22, the victor over death in chapter 25. And today we will see him as the foundation in chapter 28 and the servant king in chapter 39. Thus Jesus appears throughout this first major division in the book of Isaiah. We're familiar with Jesus in the second part of Isaiah, chapter 40 to 66, especially in chapter 53. But he is also clearly in the first part of Isaiah, as we have seen. And perhaps as a young person, you're asking, well, so what? What relevance do these portraits of Jesus have to my life? Well, obviously, we're all sinners. And finding Jesus in the Bible is a wonderful thing. He's the only saviour for our sins. But there are other ways in which these portraits are relevant to the life of young people. One is that they supplement and enrich the historical details of the life of Jesus given in the New Testament. What was it like for the Son of God to become man? It was like a lowly shoot, Isaiah says, springing from a fallen tree. These chapters provide metaphors, emotions, color to the gray details of the Gospels. Thus these portraits teach us that the Old Testament is important, something your Baptist brethren or charismatic friends might not acknowledge. These portraits also help us fulfill one of the desires of every Christian when reading their Bible. We're to find Jesus in every chapter. These prophecies of Jesus show us that he is found all over Isaiah. 
The portraits also strengthen our conviction that the Bible is the word of God. These prophecies of Jesus given in 700 BC were fulfilled to the very letter. So when you are debating with your school friends in the canteen, is the Bible the word of God? Here is a line of argument that you could use to support your assertion that the Bible is God's word. Prophecies fulfilled given 700 years before. In our studies of these chapters 1 to 39, we have noted the clear structure that the prophet has used. Chapter 1 to 6, we saw, was introductory and set the scene. 1 to 5 was a prophecy against Jerusalem. Chapter 6 contained the call of Isaiah. We have noticed that then scholars have identified four small books within the subsequent chapters. The book of Emmanuel in chapter 7 to 12, which contains three references to Emmanuel. The book of Nations in chapter 13 to 23, which contains 10 prophecies against nations. The book of Apocalypse, chapter 24 to 27, which gives us insight into the second coming of Jesus. And now this book, the book of Woes, chapter 28 to 35, in which six woes are recorded as the Reformation Study Bible indicates and Gary Smith in his two-volume commentary on Isaiah points out. Thus the prophet, inspired by God, does not just spray his message emotionally, earnestly, randomly at his hearers. He presents it in the most structured manner. One aim of in doing this is for clarity in his communication. Another aim in using this stringent structure is that his message would be remembered. Not only does he want his message to be understood, he wants it to be remembered. So he structures it in a memorable way. And this use of structure by Isaiah gives validity to sermon structure. The preacher is aiming for the teaching and application of his sermons not only to be understood, but to be remembered. The three-point sermon has been considered banal, boring, traditional, Victorian by modern home letitians, but it is grounded in a careful analysis of the human mind, as Baptist home letitian G.A. Broadus has shown. He demonstrates that the mind of congregates is best suited to remember three points of a message, not two or four. I need to read that book again because I've got four points in my sermon that are just coming up. It's not enough to read scripture or to hear the sermon or to remember it. But why? So that the word of God read and preached will change our life. Structure helps us. To remember. So the immediate context of chapter 28 is a treaty, an agreement which Israel has made with Egypt to fight with them against the Assyrians. In 28.15, the Assyrians, who were the world power at that time, are described as, you see the verse 28.15, an overwhelming whip. Now it's an unusual expression. Two images are used in this expression overflowing flood and horse whip. In Hebrew, the two words are similar and hence the combination of these metaphors. The Hebrew words are shot and shoteth. 
These images indicate that the Assyrians have conquered many nations, overflowed them like powerful waters overflowing a land, whipped them into submission, humiliating them like slaves. And aware of this unstoppable Assyrian conquest, the people of Jerusalem have joined forces with the people of Egypt. They believe that this agreement between the two neighboring nations will protect them from the exile into Assyria. As verse 15 says, it will not come near us. They will not be exiled into Assyria as other nations have been done by the mighty, powerful Assyrians. But Isaiah describes their agreement with their old enemy and pagan nation as a covenant of lies in verse 15, and death. Egypt cannot be trusted, and this pact will end in death. And our text connects to that arrangement between Jerusalem and Egypt. See how the verse begins, verse 16, therefore. It's connecting to what's been done by Jerusalem and Egypt, this agreement to to work together and to fight together. Therefore, thus says the Lord. This is his response to them trusting in Egypt. God reminds them in verse 16 that he has provided a security for them in which they should be trusting, not in Egypt, but in the stone and the sure foundation which he has established in his son, Jesus Christ. Against their misplaced belief in Egypt, the true foundation of God, Jesus, his son, is identified. Their hope and trust, and our hope and trust, should not be in any human being, but in Jesus. God has established Jesus for us to build our lives and nations on. All of us are building our lives. Building our lives on something. Some set of values govern our behavior, our outlook, our thoughts. It may be values taught to us by our parents, the values of our peers, the ethics of our society, the culture of our friends, or it might be and should be the teaching of Jesus. All of us are building our lives on a set of beliefs, our beliefs and practices are to be determined by the sure foundation, which is Jesus. What are you building your life on? Are you deliberately, consciously, daily, willingly, gladly building your life on Jesus? That is the only safe and sure foundation. All our other foundations, these verses assert, are lies and will lead to death. Every other religion promises salvation, but there's a lie that leads to death. Every other ethical code promises happiness, but leads to sorrow. Only Jesus, his work, his person, his ethics, his teaching is the sure foundation in which salvation and true life is found. Let's think of Jesus as the placed stone. Verse 16 says, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. Jesus is a placed stone. 
important stones and important buildings are chosen with care. God says, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone. The metaphor of a stone includes the ideas, as we've said to the boys and girls, of being firm, strong, immovable. Even today, walls and buildings that are made to last are made from stone. The stone here is not the temple or the law or King Hezekiah, as some commentators have suggested, but Jesus the Messiah, as the New Testament indicates. In Romans 9.33, Romans 10 verse 11 This verse is quoted and applied to Jesus. In 1 Peter 2 verse 6, which we read, the verse is applied to Jesus. The metaphor of a stone is not a new thing. It's found in Genesis 49, 24, in which the God of Jacob is called the stone of Israel. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, God is called the rock of his people, in Psalm 118.22 we read the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah has used this metaphor already in chapter 8 when he speaks about the stone of offense and rock of stumbling. The stone, this metaphor for the Lord Jesus which is ancient and now adopted by Isaiah is laid by God, has been placed by him like a skilled builder placing the stone. It has been deliberately, carefully, lovingly set in a strategic place. And God wants us to notice this. He uses here the word behold. He draws our attention to this most important thing. God has established his son, the one that our trust and hope should be in. The stone has been laid. God has implanted Firmly and deeply a stone which cannot be moved. The placing of this stone goes back to God's purpose in eternity. In the plan of God for our salvation, Jesus was at the center of his purpose. He was the foundation of all his plan of redemption. E.J. Young comments, The foundation stone has been laid by God. And what he has decreed is as good as accomplished. All that God had planned in Jesus is connected to Zion, to Jerusalem. The Davidic monarchy from which Jesus came and ruled was in Zion. Jesus fulfilled much of his public ministry in Zion. He died in Zion. He rose again in Zion. The prophecies, the fulfillment in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the stone. The sure foundation has been laid by God in Zion. The placing of the stone. On the 22nd of June, 1921, the foundation stone of Stormont building was laid by the king. He hoped the edifice built would be worthy of its parliament and that inside its walls, Laws would be enacted of justice, honour and peace for the province. And you can decide whether that's actually come to pass. But the message of this part of the prophecy is clear. There is a way of salvation for us. God has appointed, he has laid the stone, he has placed this stone of salvation for us. Just as he appointed the ark in the day of Noah, 
so he has appointed Jesus for us. There's only one way, God's appointed way. In verse 20, Isaiah gives us a graphic illustration of not trusting in Jesus, the stone. He says it's like lying in a bed that is too short or trying to keep warm with a blanket that is too narrow. There's always discomfort from lying in a jackknife position and always a draft cooling the uncovered parts of our body. That is the image of trusting in another religion. There's no complete peace or rest. But here God has laid the sure foundation. He has established the Savior. He has set him forth from all eternity and then in Zion in time. And it's on him we are to trust. If you're not yet a Christian, what is keeping you from committing your life to Jesus? One answer might be is that you're trusting in yourself, hoping that you will be good enough that you can earn your way into heaven. God wants us to see. Behold, he says, look at this, that he has appointed the way of salvation in Jesus. It is not by trusting in human effort that we find salvation and forgiveness. Judah was trusting in Egypt for salvation and help instead of on the stone who was Jesus. And our trust is to be in Jesus alone. All other world religions are religions of works. Adherents of Hinduism, Islam, Judaism are attempting to earn their way to heaven. Christianity is salvation by faith in Jesus whom God has appointed and secured and set forth for our salvation. He has done all the work in his son. He has provided the savior. He has laid the stone on which we are to build our hopes and our lives. He is the sure foundation. And we are called to trust, not try. To depend, not do. To rely, not run. To welcome, not work. To faith, not finding. To accept salvation, not attempt salvation. The placed stone I have laid in Zion, a stone. Secondly, a proved stone, a tested stone. In verse 16, different meanings of this phrase have been suggested. John Calvin suggests it means that Jesus is the standard of all others, the stone by which all others are tested. It's in the sense of, he says, a touchstone. So builders in looking for stones would seek stones similar to this crucial one. So he argues Jesus is the touchstone of all human beings. He is the model the perfection, the climax, the apex, the pinnacle of a human person. We who are sinful, therefore, are called to trust in this sinless one. E.J. Young, he offers a different interpretation. He says it's the stone which imposes tests. That is, Jesus determines our standing before God. Alec Matier suggests what I think is the best interpretation tested stone is a stone which has undergone tests. There's a stone that has proven its worth. 
as a safe and solid piece of work. The word tested is used of the process of testing metals tried in the fire to test their quality. Psalm 66 verse 10, you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. So the idea is that God has laid a foundation, not a stone of unknown qualities, and whose stability might be doubtful, but one whose firmness and solidity were fully known, a tested stone. Jesus was tested, if you like, in the work of creation, and he made all things well. And now the tested stone is appointed the redeemer of sinners. And on it, we are to trust. Perhaps you're booking an Airbnb holiday this summer. You've been looking around and what is crucial for you are the reviews. What have previous occupants said about the host and the house? Is the host a super host? Is the house clean, quiet, well furnished? Jesus is the tested stone. And when you reflect on this, this point is an accommodation to our weakness. The first point should be enough that God has appointed Jesus as Savior, but this point is added. Because it's the innate question within humanity. Is this commodity tried and tested? You take a car, you're thinking of buying for a test drive. You try on the dress, the shoes, the coat, the hat in the shop before you purchase. Young people are being tested at school in their GCSEs, in their A-levels, in their tests. And their future potential employees will, will look at those tests and see how you have done innately within us all is, is this commodity tried and tested? And God accommodates our weakness in this prophecy and says, the stone I've appointed has been tested and proved to be reliable and true and certain. He is the perfect, absolute, sure, dependable Savior. It's not a stone who will roll away from us. He's not a stone who will crumble under us. He's tested. He's true. We're not being called to blind faith in Jesus, to an experiment, to a novel idea, a new venture, but to a tested stone. He's the Savior who will carry us through life and death and, and beyond this life. This is not pie in the sky. This is not a high level of optimism that we're being encouraged towards, but to the assurance of salvation and keeping in Jesus Christ. He does save. He does forgive. He does keep. He will bring us into heaven. He is the tested stone whom God has appointed. And thirdly, he's the precious stone, a precious cornerstone. And this is a progression in the previous points, isn't it? The stone appointed by God, the stone tested by God, should therefore be a precious stone. The preciousness of Jesus is brought out by the, the more definite metaphor here, a corner stone. The corner stone is the valued stone in, in any building. 
It binds two sides of a building together and is an essential stone in the entire structure. It was not just one stone among many stones, but one large, critical stone supporting the entire building. The principal weight of the building rests on the corners. And hence, in erecting a structure, the largest and firmest blocks were selected and placed there. They were precious cornerstones. And Jesus is described in this way, signifying his intrinsic value. He is not only foundational, he is critical, he is key, he is chief, he is prominent, he occupies the most important place in the whole scheme of God's salvation. Without him, there's no salvation, no church, no heaven for us. He's the precious cornerstone. Precious to all who believe in Jesus, to all who trust in this stone for salvation, the only Savior, our Savior. That diamond ring, perhaps, ladies, that you wear occasionally, given to you by your grandmother, is precious because it's valued at 5,000 pounds, but it's also precious because it's yours. And Jesus is the precious cornerstone, not only intrinsically in himself as Son of God, as only atonement for sin, as the one seated at God's right hand. He is intrinsically precious, but he's also precious because he's our Savior, our Lord, our King. As male and female, rich and poor, black and white, Old and young, we're of equal value before God. But Jesus is of more value than any of us. Therefore, everything about Jesus should be precious to us. His name, his day, his word, his people. The precious cornerstone. Boys and girls, some of your classmates may swear. They may misuse the name of Jesus because he is not precious to them. But Jesus is precious to you. And lastly, the permanent stone. The climax of this quad of descriptions of Jesus as the foundation appointed Tested, precious, but also permanent. Jesus is going nowhere. He's a sure foundation. The building of God, the sure foundation, will stand in times of conflict. It will survive the Assyrian conflict in Isaiah's day because it's built on the solid foundation. The contrast here is with the rulers who have built on the shaky foundation of the might of Egypt in verse 17 and 18. That building will be swept away, the prophet says. Egypt with all its might will be unable to save Judah, but God's foundation will remain. His purpose of salvation in Jesus will not fail. It will not collapse. He is the sure foundation. Even the exile of Judah will not destroy Jesus 
the foundation. The purpose of redemption will live on. He has been laid there by God, tested, appointed by God, precious intrinsically. He is the sure and lasting foundation. Stones are graded as soft and hard. Talc, gypsum, calcite, fluorite are soft stones. Diamond, topaz, emerald, spinal are hard stones. Jesus is the sure foundation of all who trust in him. Those of you who are older should find great comfort in this description of Jesus as the sure foundation. He is sure for your life, then for your death, then for after this life, he is sure. He's going nowhere. He will never leave you. The life of John G. Payton Reformed Presbyterian missionary to the South Sea Islands is one of the most remarkable stories you or I could ever read. Shortly after he arrived in the South Sea Islands, his young wife, Mary, and newly born son died of a fever. This biographer describes the last moments of his wife, Mary's life. She writes, she looked up, put her hand into his and said, I wish my dear mother were here, a jewel of a woman. Don't think, John, I regret coming here. I would do it again with all my heart. And then she said, not lost, only gone before to be forever with the Lord. Jesus, the appointed stone, the tested stone, the precious stone is the sure foundation. He will last in our life and in our death and then beyond this life into the presence of God. The emphasis of the verse is on the foundation. So the practically minded among you, among whom I am not, are asking, well, what do we build on this foundation? And the end of the verse addresses that point. Whoever believes will not be in haste. The foundation is there. And we are to trust that foundation. We are to rely on that foundation. We are to build our life on that foundation. And the ones who do will not make haste. The word haste means, as one commentator says, the helter-skelter, meaningless life that characterizes people outside of Christ. Another says the rushing hither and yon, all haste and flurry, being in a flap in contrast to the rest and repose they could have enjoyed. As we believe on this foundation, we will not make haste. We will experience quiet and repose and rest in the knowledge that we are at peace with God, that he will be with us throughout life and beyond this life. We will enter his glorious presence. The stone is there. The Savior is there. Let us build our lives on him.